Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. Hear the word of the Lord. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearers is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Asotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. When Sandy and I began to talk about our plans to be missionaries, and Sandy was a missionary even before I met her, and so the same thing happened to her when she began to talk about her plans to become a missionary, some well-meaning Christians sincere, devoted Christians who love us deeply told us, don't do that. You really shouldn't do that. And they were looking out for our best interest and the best interest of the church in their mind. Some said, well, that sounds dangerous. And you're going to take your your infant daughter down there and have a family there in such a big city? Uh, When we were going to Mexico City, for example... Or one professor told me, nah, you shouldn't be a missionary. You should go be a pastor for a little while and then go get a PhD and and then come back to the seminary and, and teach preaching at this seminary. Another told me, no, what you should do is you should work your way up and you should you should try to land a big church in the United States. And I different different advice that people gave, but but missions wasn't part of that advice. And I have to say that once we got to the second city where we went, Guadalajara, it was slow going. It was slow going at first, and I needed help, but I was trying to recruit people. And they would say, well, what's going on? And I'd say, nothing. That's why we're talking. I'm trying to recruit you. And that put them off. They would say, well, I kind of would like to go somewhere where, where something's happening. And I remember even the the head of church planting for the 
National Presbyterian Church of Mexico. We were in a, a meeting together, and I was talking about how slow and difficult it was. And he said, you're in the wrong place. You, you should leave your community, and you should go somewhere else. Now, why all this, this advice, this friendly and well-meaning advice? Because where we were going, particularly in the second time, didn't look like a, a good place. Didn't look like a promising place to do missions. But I'm encouraged very much, and I think we all should be encouraged by the story today. Because if you want an unpromising place to do missions, you will see it in this text. Because God guided Philip, whom we met last week. Actually, we met him a couple weeks ago because he's one of the one of the seven who were called to minister to the the widows in Jerusalem. And then we saw last week how how Philip was driven out by the persecution in which Saul participated. He was driven out of Jerusalem, went to the city of Samaria, and was part of an amazing revival that broke out there in Samaria. And many people, many people came to Christ. And now we find in the second part of this story about Philip, we find that God guided him not to a very promising mission field like Samaria, but guided him to a very unpromising place. And it's interesting in this text, we find that both the angel of the Lord, whom we know from the Old Testament, this mysterious being, creature of God, sometimes associated with God or identified with God, sometimes distinguished from Him, that that speaks and speaks with the voice of God, and it says the angel of the Lord gave Philip specific instructions. And then in other verses, so the angel speaks in verse 26, and then in verse 29 and 39, it is the Spirit of the Lord speaking. And so the angel of the Lord and the Spirit of the Lord are giving specific guidance. Now, let me just take a a little parenthetical statement, because one of the challenges, one of the big challenges of the book of Acts is this. What of their experience is normal for us. And what was unusual, and it was something that was just happening in those days because God was getting the church off the ground. That's a difficult decision. And uh, I do not know, personally, I do not know if this kind of guidance, this kind of verbal guidance, is still something that should be normal for Christians. It's very uncommon even in the book of Acts and in the New Testament. So it doesn't look like a a normal thing even in New Testament times. And I have to say, it's outside of my experience. I do not have this experience of a, a, a sentence, a verbal sentence that is given to me with specific instruction. But I will say, if you perceive specific guidance from the Lord very specific guidance from the Lord, there's an easy way for you to know if it's the Lord speaking or not. And that is, if that specific guidance corresponds to what is written in God's Word, then it is from the Lord. If it is not in correspondence with what you find in God's Word, then it is not from the Lord, no matter how you might feel about it. And this is within my experience. There are times when I have very strong promptings. They're not verbal in words, but promptings that I should do something. Oftentimes, it's that I should go tell somebody about Jesus. Sometimes I'll be riding my bicycle, as you know I love to do, and I'll pass someone in the street, and I'll get this strong prompting that I should go back 
and try to talk to that person about Jesus. And how do I know if that's from the Lord? Well, I know it's from the Lord because He already told me to tell everybody about Jesus. And so the fact that I'm supposed to tell a specific person about Jesus is not anything surprising because He's already told me to tell everyone. And sometimes it goes amazingly well and sometimes it doesn't. But still, it is a prompting that I take as from the Lord. Why? Because it corresponds to what God has already told me to do. Now, in this case, notice, in this case, the Lord took Philip from a place of great church growth. Samaria was exploding with the gospel. The city was rejoicing because so many people were becoming Christians there. And he took Philip from that very promising place of growth, a place of what looks like a little revival going on, to a place that was very, very unpromising. It was deserted. Now, let's look at what this place was. Verse 26, the angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go. By the way, that sounds like Jonah. Rise and go. The the call to Jonah. Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, Gaza was one of the five cities of the Philistines, the ancient enemies of Israel. And it was destroyed in 93 B.C., and then it was rebuilt on another place in 57 B.C. So the question is, which Gaza was this? Was this the old Gaza, the the ruins, or was this the new Gaza that had been rebuilt? But it looks like it's the old Gaza, because it says... Uh, the author here, Luke, explains this is a desert place. And there is some evidence that the old Gaza was called Gaza of the Desert. And so it looks like what the, the spirit of the angel of the Lord here, in this case, is, is telling Philip to do, is to go to a pile of rubble. Go to a place where there is nobody that is deserted. And it says, go to the south. Now, you may have a footnote in your Bible, um, and that footnote says literally this word means midday, midday. But where is the, where is the sun at midday? It is, it is due south. And so, uh, south was, uh, midday and south, it could be directional or it could be temporal. But if it's temporal here, notice that this is a terrible time to be out in the desert. And so... Um, if, if this is midday in a deserted place, I can't think of a worse place to send a missionary. But this is what God did through His angel. And Philip obeyed. He obeyed. Even that it, though it looked like a terrible idea to leave, leave thriving Samaria to go to Gaza of the desert, perhaps at noon, But this, my friends, is how many missionary plans sound from the outside. Because, by definition, missionary plans are to go from where the church is stronger to where there is no church, or at least where the church is weaker. That's what missionaries do. And so, in some ways, missionary plans always sound like a bad idea. To go from where there is much happening to where there is little or nothing happening. But that's the call. And that's what Philip did. And then we find out 
that God called him there to meet one man. Just one. So the numbers don't look that great either, do they? Why leave the many who need preached to and discipled in Samaria to go talk to one? But that reminds me of a parable of Jesus about a man who had a hundred sheep and he lost how many? One. And he went after that one. And here we find the good shepherd going after the, the one. And this man is an extraordinary man. He is, on the one hand, on the one hand, he is a powerful man. He is a privileged man. But on the other hand, he is an excluded man. And he is a, a small minority that has a, a physical defect, probably forced upon him, that excludes him and it separates him from, from society, from marriage. And this man was, as he's described here, an Ethiopian, although he's not from what we would call Ethiopia. He's from farther north, what we would call Sudan. But in those days, they called all of that region Ethiopia. He was almost certainly a black man of, of African features and dark skin. And he was from what the Old Testament and Greek literature considered the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth. That was as far as they knew. They considered that to be the end of the earth, and after that there was another ocean. They didn't know about the rest of Africa. And it, you can see that in the Old Testament. If you look at lists of nations in the Old Testament, they talk about Ethiopia, they talk about Cush, which is the same place just south of Egypt, and that's as far away south as the Old Testament goes. That's as far as they knew. And if you look at Greeks, you can look at Homer. Uh, this is considered the ends of the earth. And so this man was from the ends of the earth, this black man, who was also, it says, a eunuch. Now, a eunuch was either castrated or completely emasculated. Now, uh, the reason for that, because we'll see that he served a woman, and so that would make him more trustworthy if he's serving a woman. And this was common, actually, up until not that long ago, to do this sort of thing for various purposes. But here, it's important, because if you go back to Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, it says that eunuchs were excluded from the assembly of the Lord. They were excluded. So while he was a powerful man in his country, he was excluded from the assembly of the Lord. He was a court official of, it calls her here Candace, which in our day is a, a feminine name. But we should think about this as the Candace, because this was a, a position and the, the, the way the royalty were, was set up in, in those days in Sudan, what they're calling Ethiopia here, is that the king was a son of the gods, and he was too holy and separate to involve himself in secular political affairs. And so he didn't get his, his hands messy with running the country. So that fell to the queen mother or the queen. And she was called the Candace. So she was the most powerful administrator, the most powerful ruler who really was, was doing something. She was running the country. 
So he was a court official of the Candace, and he was also a, the secretary of the treasury. So he had control over all the treasury, a very, very important man. And then we finally we learn that he was a worshiper of God and a reader of the Bible, the Old Testament in those days. But think about this position in which this man was. He was a worshiper of God. He had gone to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. And he was returning from worshiping the Lord. But he was also excluded from the assembly of the Lord because he was a eunuch. How frustrating would that be? To want to draw near, but to be held off and to be excluded because of something that others had done to him. Now, God first guided Philip to this very unpromising place to talk to this one person, and then God guided Philip to a biblical text about Jesus. So he gets a, an instruction, once again a verbal instruction, this time it's from the Holy Spirit, and it says that the Spirit said to, to Philip, verse 29, go over and join this chariot. So Philip runs up to him, and how do you start this conversation? By the way, that's, that's often the hardest thing about sharing the gospel. How, how do I get into this conversation? Well, this one was pretty easy. Because he heard the man reading the prophet Isaiah. And by the way, reading in those days was, was almost exclusively out loud. Because their, their text didn't have punctuation marks or capitalization. So in order to figure out where the sentence started or ended, they had to sound it out. And so he was reading out loud, or maybe his, somebody was reading to him. He at least had a driver and himself there. But he was reading out loud, and he was reading in Isaiah. In Isaiah. And so, it occurs to Philip to ask a question. He asked the question, Do you understand what you are reading? Do you understand what you are reading? And this is a very eloquent question, because there's a play on words here that doesn't come out in English, because the word to know and the word to read are the same word, but to read has a prefix on it. And so uh, he came up, and it's so it's poetic sounding, gnoskes ha anagnoskes. So gnoskes, do you know, ha, what, Anagnoskes, what you are reading. Do you know what you're reading? And so this was, this is poetic. It was educated. It was elegant. And the man responded with very eloquent Greek. The eloquence of it doesn't come out in the translation in English because his response here sounds very simple. How can I unless someone guides me? But you can tell that he's an educated Greek speaker because it sounds more, more eloquent, something like, how should I, unless it shall be that someone guides me? So it's, it's very elevated Greek. And in his answer, which is really a question, how can I, unless someone guides me, he nails the nature of the Old Testament. He reveals the nature of the Old Testament. We cannot understand the Old Testament unless we have a proper guide to understand it. And soon we're going to get what that guide is. But that's how the Old Testament is. It is obscure in many places until we have the the interpretive key that will unlock its meaning, and we're about to get it. And so, it says the passage he was reading, 
And by the way, all through this, you'll see how these, these coincidences keep coming up that we know are providences from the Lord. He just happened to be reading. Oh, by the way, uh, he saw Philip as someone who could help him out, probably recognized him as a, a Jew, and said, would you come up and join me? And you can help me to understand this. And the, the passage that he just happened to be reading was from Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. And he was reading about someone who was sacrificed and did not make an objection to being sacrificed. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearers is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And now the eunuch, showing his, his perceptiveness, asks a question. And it's the question. The question that needs to be asked and answered if we are going to understand the Old Testament. He says this, verse 34, About whom, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? That's the question. That's the question of the Old Testament. About whom is the Old Testament written? And now we find the answer. And this is the key that unlocks the whole Old Testament. Philip tells him it was written about Jesus. That's what we need to know to understand the Old Testament. It was written about Jesus. Now, it could have been harder for Philip had he been reading somewhere else in the Old Testament... But he just happened to be reading from Isaiah 53. And so, it says that beginning from this text of Scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Let me read you that chapter, Isaiah 53. And let me see if, if you can figure out about whom this text is written. Who has believed What has been heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For He grew up before Him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him, and no beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation... Who considered that he was cut off from the, out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has to put him to grief 
When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. For he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the mighty, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. What do you think? About whom? About whom? I don't know if there's another text in the Old Testament that's more obvious about whom it was written. It was, about, it was written about the one, the spotless Lamb of God, who was sacrificed to take the sins of many to die in our place so that we might be accounted righteous before God. Do you think that you could preach Jesus from this text? (laughs) Because here He is patently revealed in the Old Testament. And that's the text that this, this man just happened to be reading. And with great ease, I'm sure, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. And by the way, this is what evangelization is. Go to the people to whom God leads you and give them a text about Jesus. That's what it is. That's all it takes. And then you ask, to whom is God leading you? Well, why don't you start with this? With everybody you meet. Because God has placed you with them at that moment. What text? Pretty much anyone. But pick a clear one like this. And talk to them about Jesus, just like Philip did. Now, he must have told them, told him much more than's written here, because the man knew about repentance and faith and baptism. And then they were where? In the desert? And they just happened to come across water in the desert. And the man said, the eunuch said, verse 36, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now that is a very significant question. He's asking, is there an obstacle? Is there something that would prevent me from being baptized? And that on the mouth of the eunuch is very significant. Because this man was excluded from the assembly of Israel. This man had faced this obstacle, not of his own making. And if he would have asked in Israel, what is it that prevents me From being part of Israel, they would have said, no, you can't. But so he says now, is there anything that prevents me, the the once excluded one, from being baptized? And the answer was no. There was an obstacle to him becoming a Jew, a full Jew, but there was no obstacle to him becoming a Christian. This this black man from, from the northeast of Africa, who was powerful in his day, but who was excluded from the assembly of the Lord, could come in because there was no obstacle to him. Now, Philip then proceeded to baptize him. They went into the water. He baptized him. And they came out of the water. And the mission's accomplished. And so now the Spirit of the Lord intervenes again. And I don't know how this transport took place exactly, but it reminds us of Elijah where the Spirit of the Lord somehow carried Philip away. And you would think that perhaps the, the eunuch would be very upset about that, but he wasn't. 
It says, the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. Rejoicing. Go back to verse 8 of this same chapter. What happened in Samaria when the gospel penetrated that city? And many believed. Verse 8, so there was much joy in that city. And now it says the exact same reaction. He went on his way rejoicing. This is what happens when the gospel goes into a place or into a person. There is rejoicing. That's the result. There is joy. And then it says, Philip found himself. It sounds like he was surprised, but he, was, he found himself about 20 miles up the coast. In Asotus, which was ancient Ashdod, which was another of the five cities of the Philistines. And then it says that he passed through, as he passed through up the coast, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. That means that he passed through Lydda and Joppa. Now we will find that Peter is going to go to Lydda and Joppa, but Philip gets there before he does. And in fact, we find Philip out ahead. He's doing things that, that the apostles haven't even caught up with yet. He is out preaching to the, go- the gospel to people who are very, very different. He preached, them to the, preached the gospel to the Samaritans first, and they're, they're half Jews, so that was a stretch for some, but that was, they could sort of kind of get that. And now he goes and he preaches the gospel to this Sudanese man, this Ethiopian man, this eunuch man. And so he's out ahead, preaching the gospel to those who were very different from himself and the original apostles. Now, we don't, we don't hear about Philip until chapter 21 of Acts. And in chapter 21 of Acts, this is interesting, because we find Philip, and he's still in Caesarea. So it looks like what he did was he settled down in Caesarea, and we find that he is married, we find that he's called the evangelist, we find that he has four daughters, and his four daughters prophesied just like their dad did. And so... It looks like what he did is he settled down. Now, why is that significant? Well, do you remember last week we saw that people were driven out of Jerusalem? And maybe some of them trickled back, but Philip didn't. Philip established a new base of operations on the coast, northwest of Jerusalem in Caesarea. And so the results of that persecution, the results of that that dispersion, that diaspora, were long-lived. Christians were sent out, and many of them never came back. But what did they do wherever they went? They preached the Bible. They preached the gospel to those they found. Now, um, we can give Philip a great deal of credit here for obeying the voice of the Lord. And he deserves that. But at the same time, we need to read this text and see all these details about who was really working here. We see that it was, God sends His angel, God sends His spirit, God provides uh, the, uh, the, for Peter or Philip to meet this man just as he goes by in the cart. Uh, he happens to be reading Isaiah 53, and then they happen to come on water. It's very, very clear that God is doing all of this. And we need to keep these two things together. God calls, we must obey. But God is the one who orchestrates. God is the one who designs. God is the one who does the work. He is always the one that makes things happen. And He is the one that always will. Our part is to respond and obey the call. With those to whom God brings us, to open our mouths like Philip did, 
and teach from God's Word the things about Jesus. Now, I mentioned the professor that wanted me to go get a PhD and teach preaching. Well, I get to do that now, not at that same seminary, but at another seminary, and it's really a privilege. But one of the things I tell uh, students is don't end a sermon reading. That's really a bad idea. Because then you're looking at the book instead of at the people. And I guess I could add, especially don't end a sermon reading a book called An Introduction to the Science of Missions by J.H. Bovink. But I'm going to do that anyway. Because here is a, a reading of the history of the world in, in one paragraph. And what J.H. Bobbing, who was a missionary himself in Indonesia, says that, look at the history of the world. And what God is always doing is He's reminding His church and He's orchestrating things to get His church to do what the church should be doing. And still further, it is of importance to notice the means God used to move His reluctant church to missionary work. During the time of the apostles, He utilized the persecution in Jerusalem. And in later centuries, He employed many different means. He let the Roman Empire be flooded by diverse nations and thereby made the church again become active. He brought the entire north of Europe within the horizon and thereby stimulated missionary power. He let Islam penetrate Europe in Spain, Sicily, and the Balkans. And out of these crises, He again awoke the awareness of the necessity of preaching. He let the Mongolian hordes penetrate Eastern Europe and thereby made the church again conscious and vigilant. He drew America, Asia, and Africa within sight and let colonial empires grow, lay economic ties between various parts of the world and thereby opened the eyes of the church to its immeasurable task. At one time, he used the fear of the wild hordes as an instrument to remind his church of his command. Then again, he utilized political and economic relationships to revitalize the forgotten calling. Throughout all ages, God has ever followed His church with His directions. The church can never escape His guidance. It is never left to itself. God repeatedly stands before the church with His challenge, with the possibility that He opens, with the dangers that He brings. The church itself always succumbs to its desire to forget the world, to push it away as a fearful temptation, but God repeatedly brings the world, the restless world of nations, to the very gates of the church so that, so that it can again remember the word that He once spoke on a mountain of Palestine. And then He goes on and says, if we view history in this manner, There is no reason at all for the veneration of the saints, including Philip. We can think thankfully of the names of numerous great missionary heroes without forgetting for a single moment that importance is not to be attached to them, but only to God. God alone is great. We suffer defeats. We erect barriers. We dig graves. We are repeatedly discouraged, disappointed, and powerless. But God goes forth from age to age and does His great and glorious work in spite of, and yet also, with the utilization of our weak and unworthy 
powers. Let's pray. God, we recognize ourselves in this description of the church that always wants to forget the world, to push it aside and forget that call that You gave us. Lord, we pray that as You are once again stirring up the nations through this pandemic, through mass migrations, through economic turmoil, we pray, O God, that we as Your church would return to that call that You gave us on that mount in Galilee to go to all the nations and make disciples of Jesus, teaching them and baptizing them. Lord, we are indeed weak and unworthy vessels, but we know that You have deigned to use such weak and unworthy vessels to get the Word out. And You use some to get it to us. And we thank You, O God, that the Gospel has reached even us at the ends of the earth from the perspective of Jerusalem. And we pray, O God, that it would not stop with us, but that You would enable us to see Your hand in what You are doing in this world in great turmoil now, and that we would see it as an opportunity to preach the Gospel to all to whom You bring us. And we pray this in the name of that One, Jesus, that Lamb who was sacrificed for us, so that our transgressions might be forgiven, and so that the nations might be brought in. Amen.